want to, um, can I encourage you to open up your, your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Matthew. Uh, we're going to be Matthew chapter 10, starting on verse 16. So um, for those of you who don't know, if this is your first time here, uh, as a church, we have been little by little walking our way through the gospel of Matthew. And so we are right in the mid, um, about halfway, a third of the way, halfway through the book of Matthew. And Jesus is midway through his second big sermon. Uh, previously, he's done his Sermon on the Mount, which is a really famous passage with all the, the Beatitudes and uh, incredible teaching. And now this is his second set of teaching. And it's all about mission. It's all about him sending people out to continue the thing that God has done for him. So we are going to be reading from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 23. That's Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 23. It says, I am sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You're going to be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. See, at that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but it'll be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child... Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. See, truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Let's pray. Jesus, as we gather around your words, and we long to hear them again afresh for us, I pray that the Spirit, you would speak to us in a way that we can hear and understand. And that our hearing wouldn't just be intellectual knowledge, but Lord, that our hearing would be transformational. That you would continue to form us, shape us into the people, the disciples, that you want us to be. So Jesus, we make space and room for you to speak today. Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So just a good lighthearted passage for your Sunday morning, right? Some quick, easy listening to pipe you up for the rest of the day. I mean, so one of the things that I didn't think about when I decided to go through Matthew is I was like, oh, it'd be great to preach through Jesus. Jesus has so many amazing things. Turns out Jesus is a lot harder to preach from than I had anticipated. It's this reminder that Jesus... He's not like us. I mean, he is. He understands us. But I think sometimes for us, particularly in the modern West, 21st century, we can assume that Jesus is very much like us. He holds the values that we hold, that he thinks about the world the same way we do. I mean, even in the way that we physically think about Jesus, we can think that Jesus looks a little bit like us. One of my favorite internet trends that showed up a couple years back was a trend where um, kids trying to mess with their parents. So their parents would be very religious and they'd usually have a picture of Jesus up on the wall. And so what the kids would do to try and mess with their parents is they would take that picture of Jesus and they would replace it with Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars. And the game was to see how long it took before they noticed. 
Some are still going. <laughs> Some took three weeks. But it's this amazing thing, eh, that often when we think about Jesus, even in the storybooks that we read, you can often think, or the literature, the famous paintings, often we paint Jesus with blonde hair, blue eyes, fair skin, and we come to church on Sundays and we think about what God wants for us and we think, oh, God understands suburban life and Jesus, you know, would have wanted the same upward mobility in the house prices that I would have liked and Jesus probably wanted a three-bedroom room with two and a half baths and a walk-in closet. Like, it's easy for Jesus to become like us. But there are moments when you go back and you read his words and I think today is one of those passages where we are reminded that Jesus, he is like us and he understands us. But also, he is very different. He is and was a first century traveling Jewish rabbi. He did not see the world the same way we do. He didn't live in the same necessary context that we do. And most importantly, he doesn't just look like us, but we believe Jesus more than anything else shows us what God is like. So that means that Jesus is always going to be a little bit different from what we expect, right? So I think it's helpful to have that in mind when we come to tricky passages like today. Passages that we kind of wish Jesus hadn't said. But remember, Jesus is not, he's not a 21st century Pakia person. He's not living in suburban life. Jesus has different values. And so one of the things that we do here at this church, the reason why we walk through scripture, is because we believe that Jesus has the best way of life. Oh, hi, Eden. Hi. Jesus has the words that shape us, but at times those words will challenge us. At times those words will push us to think differently, and they will remind us that Jesus himself is different from us. So, with all that proviso, some context. What's happening here? So, Jesus is midway through his sermon on mission. So one of the things that Matthew does is Matthew starts the book of the, uh, the story of Jesus, introducing Jesus, and Jesus has a message. He has one thing that he talks about again and again and again. What is Jesus's primary thing that he's telling everybody about? What is it? What's Jesus's main message that he talks about over and over again? What's that? The kingdom of heaven. Exactly. It's everywhere. Repent. Turn. Come close, because the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. Now, when Jesus says that, we have to remember, he's not in our world, he was in his world. And when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, he's not meaning that when you die, you just get to go to heaven. He does mean that, but he means so much more. See, when he announces the kingdom of heaven, he's saying there's a new ruler in charge. You think the world is run by Rome, or it's run by Caesar, or maybe it's run by America, or maybe it's run by China, or maybe it's run by Facebook or Google. You think this is the way the world works, but Jesus is saying, behold, God is coming. His kingdom is coming, and the way that God rules things is coming. So get in line with what God's doing. It's so much better than what the world's doing, but it implies a new structure and a new system. And so Jesus has been announcing that kingdom in word with his Sermon on the Mount, but also indeed through the incredible healings and the ministries that he's done. He's showing what it looks like when God shows up. And what happens when God shows up? People are set free. Lives are transformed. But also systems of power begin to get challenged as he fights with the Pharisees and the religious systems. Because anything that tries to hold power over God's kingdom, he comes into conflict with, right? 
So he's been doing that, and then he's been gathering some followers, and then in the most awkward of passages, if I were one of his disciples, Jesus, midway through his ministry, turns around to his 12 very unqualified people and says, behold, I'm now sending you. You are empowered to go and spread the ministry, to do what I have done, to set the captive free, to, to release those under uh, uh, imprisonment and demon possession, and to bring healing. And they're suddenly like, uh-oh. I don't know if I was ready for this. And so Jesus has been now explaining that to them. And so everything now is the teachings that Jesus is saying to those disciples. But can I get a little bit nerdy with you about the Bible real quick? When you read this passage, did you notice something weird about it? So Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples. And then what does he say immediately is going to happen? You're going to be handed over to councils, flogged in synagogues, you're going to be brought before governors and kings. Now, is that confusing to anyone? Do you know, is it confusing? Why is it confusing? Because it didn't happen to these 12 right then. They went out and did a little short jaunt, but they didn't get pulled before Caesar. They didn't get pulled before Rome or flogged in these stories just yet. So what's happening here? And this is what's really interesting, a little bit of Bible nerd stuff. So Matthew, one of the things that Matthew has done is he's taken the gospel of Mark as one of his like base texts. He's taken Mark's story and then he's rearranged some of it and added in his own element to tell his story, to tell his perspective on Jesus. And so what Matthew's done here is he's taken a section from Mark's gospel where Jesus is doing like big picture apocalyptic teaching and Matthew has added it in here to the message to the disciples going out on mission. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it puts the focus on us. Matthew is putting these big picture statements about what's going to happen to his followers into the statement to help us, the reader, think, oh, this just wasn't for those 12. Jesus is talking to us now. He's talking to the people who are going to believe after these 12 people tell the story. He's talking about what's going to happen to the long story of believers who are going to go and do the same things that he has done which I just think that that part of the Bible is really interesting, how you get different books and they pull them together. But the point is, he's talking to us. Matthew has included this here so that people like us, when we read it, we think, whew, okay, this might include us. So let me read that again. I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You're going to be handed over to local councils. You'll be flogged in synagogues. You'll be brought before governors, kings, witnesses into the Gentiles. And when they arrest you, did you notice that? When they arrest you? Not if. If would have been really helpful, Jesus, wouldn't it have been? When they arrest you. So we sit with that. Jesus is now talking to us. So, in this sermon on mission, what do we take away from this? What are some things that we need to hold on to in this moment? The first one that is really challenging for us is that for Jesus, persecution and difficulty is assumed. It's an assumed part of the story. And now, if I were Jesus giving a pep talk, this isn't what I'd lead with, right? Like, hey, It'll be fine. Some bad things might happen, but you'll be okay. But think about all the good things. No, Jesus leads with, you're going to run into difficulty here. You're going to run into challenges and persecutions as you try and walk through. Listen to that. You're going to be handed over to councils. You'll be flogged in synagogues. 
You'll be brought before governors and kings. You'll be arrested. Listen, a brother will betray brother to death and a father against his child. He's talking about the dysfunction that will come in families because for some people to follow the call of Jesus would rift and break open families. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. There's this assumption that persecution and difficulty is a part of the story. And that's really, really, really hard. And when you look at the story of the Christians after that point, for the next 300 years, that's their story. Consistently, they've met different kinds of persecution. Different people challenge them. And why? Well, mostly because the early church did two things that did not make the Romans happy. One, they kept talking about the exclusivity of Jesus as opposed to any other system. One of the, the, the critiques that Romans would lay at, at Christians is they called them atheists, which I think is funny in a modern context, isn't it? Because Romans believed in this huge pantheon of gods, and Christians said, not all of them are meaningless, except for one. And this was terrifying. Because back then, religion and political systems were interwoven. And so if you are worshiping and giving like uh, sacrifices to the God of the harvest, and you have a bad harvest that year, why do you have a bad harvest? It's because that God is angry with you. What happens now when you get a significant portion of the population that stop worshiping in these spaces? And when bad things start to happen in your city and in your neighborhood, who becomes the quick scapegoat for these failures? It became both politically and economically very convenient for Rome to put Christians as scapegoats because they maintained that Jesus is above all. He is not one of the many gods. He's not one of the options you can think about. He is utterly different and completely supreme in every single way, and that did not sit well with Roman communities. And so they were persecuted. The other thing that was interesting is they challenged Roman systems of power. Again, one of the themes of Revelation, uh, I don't have heaps of time to go into it, but in the back half of Revelation, you have all these challenges where there's this imperial cult, and if you wanted to do trade or work in a city, if you wanted to grow in like the different clubs and groups and business communities, as part of being a part of those business communities, you needed to go to a temple that proclaimed Caesar as a god, and you had to go and pay tribute there. You had to worship Caesar as a god. You had to get incense on your hand and forehead as part of that ritual practice. And if you did that, then you were allowed to be part of a guild. But Christians refused. They said, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is. I'm not going to do that. And they begin to live very differently. They begin to look after the poor and the needy. We've talked about a few weeks back how they set up a comprehensive social safety net in many of the cities that they were in, which then made Roman governors feel really insecure because people started to trust the Christians to help them rather than the Roman governors in the area. And politicians love it when people don't trust them, don't they? That's just their favorite thing. And so Christians began to get persecuted because they maintained the exclusivity of Jesus and they challenged the cultural systems of their day. And it became a huge, huge, huge challenge for them. Um, 
This is this, yeah, this is one quote from Rodney Stark, who's written a great book on the rise and triumph of Christianity. He says, Rome was far more religious than other societies in the ancient world. And large numbers of Romans, especially those making up the political elite, sincerely believed that the gods had made Rome the great empire that it had become. That being the case, Christianity was an obvious affront to the gods, given that the church denied the existence of the gods and charged that worship to them was blasphemy. So it was entirely logical to assume that for Rome to tolerate Christianity was to risk bringing down the displeasure of the gods upon its affairs. Fascinating, eh? And for so much of the church's story, in much of the global world, this has maintained the reality for them. That to be a Christian came with a cost. To follow Jesus in many places of the world still today comes with a profound cost. China, for example, if you want to move up in governmental leadership positions in China, you have to sign papers talking about proclaiming yourself to be an atheist and believing in the power of the Chinese Communist Party. It's a challenging place to be a Christian there. But what's interesting is that even here in the West, it's fascinating as Western countries become more secular, it becomes harder and harder to be a Christian here too. Now, it's not to the same level of China at all. We acknowledge that. But it has shifted. I mean, I even noticed for us in a building program, um, our access to grant funding has dropped off a cliff. Even in conversations with groups that used to be friendly towards giving towards churches as good community uh, places are all going through funding reviews, and there's a huge question mark whether churches will be able to still get public grant funding for things like building construction. Now that's small, it's not as significant, but it's growing. Or did you follow this story? In Australia, uh, there was a new uh, a CEO that was appointed to one of the Aussie Rules football clubs in Melbourne. And he was appointed there, and then within 24 hours, um, it had come out that he was also the, on the board of a conservative Christian church in that space. Now, what was interesting about this is before, we've always had conflict with Christians in positions of power. We know that. And I'm not commenting on whether he's the perfect guy or example of Christ. I'm just thinking about the situation. This is the first one that I've seen where his track record didn't come into discussion. Didn't matter what had happened in his previous jobs. His current association on the board of a conservative Christian church was enough to push him out. Fascinating, right? Now again, you could debate, are there merits to that? Are there good things? Did the conservative Christian church say views that are bad? You can negate that, but it's interesting that within 24 hours, he was given a choice. Of he could either be the CEO of the rugby club or he could stay on his church board, but he couldn't do both. The fact that that scenario has come up, I think is new for us in the West. It's an environment we're not used to. In YWAM, uh, before I was a pastor here, I was in a uh, group called Youth with a Mission. And Youth with a Mission, great organization, did lots of things. But one of Youth with a Mission's big theological focuses is, is they believed that we wanted to train up people to go into secular areas of the world, to, inf to positions of power and significance, to be able to influence those places for the gospel. So we want to train creatives to go into Hollywood and help influence Hollywood with the gospel. We want to train uh, bankers and doctors to go into those spaces and influence. It sounds great, right? But when I was reflecting on this passage, 
And I was reflecting on this story and I was reflecting on what Jesus was saying. I wonder whether there might be a shift for us. See, before we always wanted to train our people to move into high positions of influence so that they could change society. I wonder if we need to start thinking about the fact that actually in the coming future, we might need to start preparing our young people for the reality that if they want to be Christian, some jobs might not be available to them in the future. That might be the tensions that they have to walk through. It's a fascinating shift, particularly for us in the West, because we've enjoyed being in the center of society for the past like 500 years. So the shift out requires some good thinking, and I think Jesus would help us to frame this as an expectation. For the majority of the church, they have lived this way. Interesting, eh? Persecution and challenge with the world is assumed. Now, what do we do about that? What posture should we take if there's an assumption of challenge with the world? Now, one of my pet peeves in the internet, because I'm on the internet too much, and I tell you you shouldn't be, but I'm guilty and I'm a hypocrite, I'm apologizing, but one of the things that, I, that frustrates me to no end is the culture wars. The endless culture wars that seem to be in this space, where it's like as soon as these conversations happen, it can be really easy for us as Christians to get defensive, to start fighting and, and proclaiming our rights and be like, well, if they're going to punch us, we got to punch back just as hard. What is that the posture that Jesus would have us take? As we move into the margins of society, what posture should we take? Jesus says this, I am sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. I am sending you out literally like lambs to slaughter. Now again, those of you who, New Zealand has many sheep, you guys know, if you're gonna build a sports team, if you're gonna be a rugby team, and you want a mascot that's going to inspire fear in the heart of your enemies, and engender courage within your team to push the boundaries forward, let's be honest, sheep is not the mascot you're choosing, is it? Sheep, they're not intimidating animals. They're not particularly intelligent animals. They're not particularly brave animals. Nor do they particularly accomplish very much. They eat, and then they get stuck in a fence, or a hole, or a ditch. And you gotta pull them out again and again and again. This is how Jesus describes us. And I think often when it comes to persecution, and when I think about the culture wars, and how often, as for those of us who are more conservative in our, in our theology, as we feel ourselves moving to the margins, there's a real temptation for us to rise up in defense and try and get big to hold our ground. But Jesus says, I am sending you out like lambs, like sheep amongst wolves. There's an assumption there that the posture you take is not gonna be the same as the wolves. We go out more innocent, certainly more vulnerable, and a lot more dependent upon God than in our own ability and strength. We wait for God to break through and do something. Frederick Bruner talking about Matthew, I love the way that he talks about this passage. Thinking about sheep versus wolves, he says, we are not primarily fighters. We're not allowed to be haters, and we can't even use the inflammatory language that revolutionary movements find necessary to motivate people, to rile people up. It's the nature of sheep to be pushed around, and that is why sheep so badly need shepherds. In short, the word sheep means that disciples are not to see themselves as engaged in conquering crusades. But in fact, Jesus' cross is not an exception to the rule of a disciplined life. The cross is the rule. 
the assumption that we go and we die to self, that we die for our enemies that Jesus has done is baked into this. And I think that's a really interesting posture to take. Very, very different from some of the defensive ones. Now, Jesus also says, be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. This is relatively easy to understand. Snakes always, particularly in the scriptures, are more cunning, clever, crafty. But Jesus says, like, don't be an idiot, right? In fact, don't be a martyr that's looking to get slaughtered. This was one of the, when you read the early church fathers, which I'm sure you do all the time, right? That's, we all love that casual reading. But when you read through them, one of the things that's really interesting, because persecution was really common then, there is a lot of writing for them trying to tell their people to not go and try to be martyred. Don't go out of your way to get persecution put on you. Don't be an idiot. Don't go out there and put yourself out there being like, please, targets, come hit me. And that could be a really easy posture to take. I want to be the martyr. I want to be the example. Jesus is like, no, don't do that. Be smart. And in fact, be cunning. Sometimes you have to do things differently. But Jesus directs that cunningness is not towards getting our way or managing things. We have to be as innocent as doves within that. In fact, I love a little bit later in the posture. Um, take it here. This is a fascinating one. A little bit further down there, it says, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Interesting, eh? Jesus isn't wanting you to go out there and just get killed just for the sake of it. Don't look for it. If you're getting persecuted, move on to the next place. Be as shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. But overall, we are sheep. And in that sheep, as we become like sheep, God does powerful work. St. Augustine talked about uh, reflecting on this period of persecution in the church. He says, there, there was then at that time a herd of wolves and very few sheep, talking about the persecution the church faced. But when the many wolves killed the few sheep, the wolves were changed and they became sheep. As people led with vulnerability, weakness, and trust in God, the persecutors themselves were so often transformed by that sacrificial love. One of my favorite stories about this, there's a book called The Heavenly Man. I don't know if you've read it. It's a biography of this believer from China. And it, I couldn't even do justice to his story. There's so many things there that you're like, I cannot believe this has happened. Imprisonment, uh, miraculous escape from imprisonment, re-imprisonment, another miraculous escape from imprisonment, and then re-imprisonment again. Uh, persecution, trial, famine. But one of the things that struck me about his story is when he was in jail, the posture that he had was like that of a sheep. When those would persecute him, do harm, attack him, wound him, beat him, he always prayed for them. He cried out for God's forgiveness on them. He showed them love and care. And then the problem was, he was so effective that the jailers had to move him into his own isolated cells because he was converting too many of their guards. Literally, that was, they didn't want their guards to interact with him because the posture that he carried was in itself the transformative power. Jesus sends us out as sheep. We lead with our vulnerability. It's one of the values of this church. We lead with our dependence on Jesus, not necessarily our own strength, our own will, but we trust in a shepherd who can do the work. And so we carry a posture as we face difficulty, not to hurt, but to bless, to cry out for their good to do good to those who hate us. Another one of Jesus' most famous sayings. I love that, that phrase. 
When the many wolves killed the few sheep, the wolves were changed and became sheep. There's one final thing in this passage. Jesus tells us that difficulty is assumed in walking with him. He tells us that the posture you should take when you encounter difficulty is not over-defensiveness, nor is it idiocy in seeking martyrdom, but he wants you to be like a sheep, trusting in the shepherd to lead and protect and showing love to those who harm you. But the anchoring thing in this passage, more than anything, is it emphasizes the lordship of Jesus above all else. The passage opens up with this, I am sending you. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings. And at that time, what you will say will be given to you because it will be the spirit of the Father speaking in you. Later on, it says, you'll be hated by everyone, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved because the Son of Man will return and he will make all things right. The grounding thing for this passage is reminding us that as we follow Jesus, he is our healer, absolutely. He is our friend, totally. He is our comforter, 100%. But he is also our Lord. He is our master, the one that we want to obey, the one on whom everything depends. And it can be really easy in our cultural environment to forget that. I was listening to a podcast um, where they were interviewing uh, someone who worked with the Iranian church. Now, if you don't know, Iran has been a fascinating country to watch recently, hasn't it? God's doing something. By most estimates, the big kind of survey people reckon that Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. God is doing a powerful thing there. And we've seen even recently with the huge protests as women are removing the hijabs, many of whom are being killed and persecuted. It is a time of chaos and upheaval and God is doing something fascinating in Iran. The church is growing like gangbusters. For the past 50 years, they saw maybe a handful of converts. But in the last 15 to 20, something has changed Something has opened up and it's exploded. In fact, as people have become more dissatisfied with this strong Muslim rule, people are looking for other options. And there, the gospel of Jesus has been challenging the power systems of the day and been opening up freedom and transformation for people. People coming to faith from the most random things. They find random emails, random things, random Bibles. They read it and they become followers of Jesus. And what's crazy is the church leaders in that space don't have huge discipleship programs that they can build people in because it's building too fast. And so when someone comes to faith, they told the story of, um, they called a number that they found on a pamphlet. And this person was in Turkey. So someone from Iran was calling someone from Turkey and saying, I want to follow Jesus. Can you help me? And so over the phone, this person in Turkey has been discipling this brand new Christian in Iran. And a key part of this conversation is they're saying, when they hear this phone call, is not, okay, here's a person we need to disciple and get ready for the next few years. What they're saying is, there's a church planner. There's someone who's going to start sharing the gospel. And so they start talking through this woman who's just become a Christian on how to share her faith. And people are coming to faith as she begins to open up about what God is doing there. It is remarkable. Still incredible persecution. People getting beaten, losing jobs, Uh, losing connections, social standing in their community as they follow Jesus, but yet the gospel is spreading. And what was interesting is in this podcast, they were interviewing this guy who's doing all this work in Iran, and they were asking him, what lessons do you think the church in the West could learn from what God is doing in Iran? 
Do you know what his number one thing was? He said, he said I think the church in the West needs to rediscover the importance of the lordship of Jesus. He says, these people in Iran, they understand when they're following Jesus, they're giving everything. They understand that it's a serious call that comes with cost. But because of that dedication, God is releasing incredible things. He says, in the West, it's very easy to forget that. That Jesus is not just our friend, although he is, not just our helper, but he is the source. He is our master, our teacher. It's why on Sundays, we read his words together and talk about what it can be like to help us more faithfully follow him. Jesus is Lord. So if I can invite the team up, we'll look at finishing. It's a challenging passage. There's no two ways around that. But Jesus doesn't always make things easy, does he? Jesus invites us to a different way of being. And so I guess the question that I want to finish, having assumed all this, that Jesus assumes that persecution and difficulty will be part of our story, that he wants us to take on the posture of sheep amongst wolves, and that he is Lord over all, there's a couple of questions I want to finish with, and the band will lead us in this song. The first question is a basic one. Have you made Jesus Lord of your life? When we talk about baptism or following Jesus or becoming a Christian, a key component of that is saying, Jesus, you're not just my savior, but you are also my Lord. And I want to follow you. I want to do what you've asked me to do. I want to submit my life to your teachings and your principles. And so if you're here today, that's one of the questions that Jesus would ask you. Have you made him Lord? And second question For those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a while, and we've been coming to church, and it's good, and we have a good time, we have our coffee, and that's great. We go to youth group, and we go to events. It's great. But there's a question that struck me, which is this. If Jesus is Lord, how does that outwork in your life? Here's a question. What convictions do I hold that I would not hold had I not acknowledged Jesus as Lord of my life? Because sometimes, again, Jesus is different. And if Jesus believes in all the same things that we do and holds all the same values that we do and does all the same things that we do and has the same, all the same dreams that we do, there's a high chance that what we're following is not actually Jesus but ourselves. So what convictions do I hold that I would not hold had I not acknowledged Jesus as Lord of my life? It's an interesting question that this week it would be good to reflect on. Where is God calling you out of your comfort zone? Where is God calling you towards greater faithfulness? Now that will come with difficulty, that will come with trial, but again, what I loved about the story of the Church of Iran is that for everyone who became a Christian, there was this recognition, did they lose stuff? Yeah. Was it hard? Yeah. But was what God doing, was what God doing there better than all that they'd lost? Yes. What God does is better than what we give up. What God is able to unleash is better than us staying stagnant. So it comes with sacrifice, but it is good. It is always good. Let's pray. Jesus, this week as I have been reading and sitting in your words, they have challenged me. They've, they've troubled me. They have raised up areas in my life that I think, oh man, I need to actually, I need to repent there 
Lord, I recognize that particularly for us here in Aotearoa right now, for many of us, we live a very privileged life where there are challenges, but we also experience a lot of comfort. And in that comfort, our eyes can often drift away from you towards other things. Jesus, I pray that today would be a day where you call us back. You call us to bow the knee to you, to trust in you and to follow you, to let your words shape our lives, to let your call shape our call and to let our lives be given towards your mission. Jesus, I pray that you would call us back to that again today. God, I repent. We repent for the ways that we focus on things that are just not, not of you. The way we become complacent or the way we try to co-opt you into what just we want. Jesus, I pray that amongst us, you would remind us that you are our king, that you are the Lord. Help us to be obedient to you, to trust you like sheep trust their shepherd to be led by you as sheep are led by you, to trust in you for all that we need. God, would you work that amongst us? And this week, Lord, if there are things that we need to think or, or challenge or shift, I pray that your spirit would guide us in that. We wanna be with you. Jesus, I wanna be with you and I want us to be a church that follows you. Help us to do that more faithfully today, we pray. Amen.